Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks to Dr. Ralph Medson about his article, Endoscopic Sinus Surgery for Chronic Rhinosinusitis, 22-Item Sinonasal Outcome Test, 5-Year Results. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I've invited Dr. Ralph Medson, who is a professor of otolaryngology at Harvard Medical School. We'll be discussing today his recently published paper entitled Endoscopic Sinus Surgery for Chronic Rhinosinusitis, 22 Items Sinonasal Outcome Test, Five-Year Results. Hi, Ralph. Uh, Thanks for your time today. Hi, Amber. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk to you today. For those of you who don't know Ralph, he's a real leader in our field. You have a lot of experience. I think we were, I was doing the math and you have over 30 years of experience in sinus surgery and probably have witnessed a lot of changes in what we know and how we treat chronic rhinosinusitis. So super excited to kind of tap into that experience this morning. Likewise. So this title, endoscopic sinus surgery, and basically looking at outcomes of sinus surgery, you know, sinus surgery has been around for 40 years, and you're basically looking at the durability of its effectiveness. How is that possible? It seems like this study should have been done already. It sure does seem like it, at least on the surface. And we asked ourselves the same question. There were so many studies out there looking at three months, six months, one year, even two-year outcomes from sinus surgery, but really nothing at five years. The reason why is it's a little harder to do a good job over the long term, so to speak. I mean, it's just an issue of setting up the mechanics to follow patients prospectively, longitudinally for five years, and the concern about patient dropout as well. So Mm -hmm. really had to have a well-oiled machine, if you will, in order to capture all the data and compare the five results to the preoperative results. I see. So what prompted you to look at that question like now? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Has this been something you've been thinking about? And was it just a matter of getting the logistics in place? Yes, evidence-based medicine. You know, we're being judged by external forces, whether it's managed care or governmental agencies, Medicare, or Mm -hmm. our own local institutions. We just have to give good evidence to show that what we do really works from a clinical outcomes, as well as a financial benefit point of view. And we just have to justify the money we spend and the time and effort we put in taking care of patients. And one way is to validate a five-year result of a treatment paradigm, whatever it might be, in this case, endoscopic sinus surgery. And was there something that prompted you to think about this now? As you said, are there external pressures that really drove you to think about this question at this time experience with sinus surgery? Well, PROMS, Patient report outcome measures are getting more and more popular. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are having to gather that data just in their electronic medical records. It's being demanded of them, the local institutions and hospitals and departments more and more all the time. Oh, that makes sense. So you were telling me while we recounted your experience in this field, you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking about this history of these patient-reported outcomes. What's your experience and your particular interest in this field? Well, I was in Boston. I had trained at UCLA on the West Coast, and I moved. I finished my residency. I took a job in Boston, and I got to hear a lecture in 1988 by Dr. Paul Elwood, who talked about a new technology of patient experience. And that was really the start of 
clinical outcomes, if you will, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we had a resident at the time who became a fellow and did some training really early on at Yale. His name was Dr. Richard Glicklick, prominent oleorongologist in Boston. And he was a contemporary of Dr. J. Picarillo, who really invented this not 22. They both trained at Yale, and he came and convinced most of our staff at Mass Ioneer, and certainly me, that this was the way of the future. And he came to my office and basically hmm. started handing out surveys and questionnaires to all of my patients before and after I did sinus surgery on them. And I ended up using one of those surveys for my trilogic thesis in the early 1990s. We started publishing papers in the idea. In 1999, we threw what was called the uh, Outcome Symposium at Harvard University. Dr. Glicklick and I hosted that. And in attendance were people like Mickey Stewart and Jay Piccarillo and George Gates and Wow. A lot of really outstanding leaders in clinical outcomes and otolaryngology for the future. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, the five-year outcome study, longitudinal, is just really a, a culmination, or at least the latest iteration of this whole process. Wow, that's great. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously changed the way we think about this. And now it seems like all the studies, whether it's a new device or a new pharmaceutical therapeutic being offered. That's the go-to disease-specific quality of life questionnaire. So congratulations on being involved in the initiation of, of all of that and getting that started. One thing you talked about the efficacy of, of sinus surgery, and one of the kind of surprising observation that I noticed from the study is that patients with you know, nasal polyps, other patients with other markers associated with more severe disease, such as the presence of allergies and higher pre-op CT sinus scores, Lum McKay scores, they seem to do better, it looked like, at the five-year mark than others. You were looking at various different factors. Did that observation surprise you? It did surprise me to a certain extent. But on the other hand, looking at the earlier studies we had done at one-year and two-year outcome results, we did find not the exact same findings. Some of them were new, but mm-hmm. those that had a heavier burden of disease, that is patients who present with a nose full of polyps, mm-hmm. actually do better, have a better improvement in their patient reported outcomes than those with more minimal disease who undergo surgery. There's a larger delta, if you will, because they start out so much worse I than see. the average patient. But it also seemed like for many of them. Now, you know, when we'll dive into this question about revision surgery or recurrence, but it seemed like some of these results were quite sustainable over several years. Yes, they were. And again, say over several years, it's over five years. So first mm-hmm. to show these results are sustainable, we just needed a large group of patients. So the study that was launched this latest one in 2011, and we started with not just my own patients, but really a, 11 different surgeons who did endoscopic sinus surgery. We have now over 1,400 patients enrolled in this longitudinal study, if you will, mm-hmm. at Mass Sinier. But we looked at, again, those that have been around for at least five years who've completed surveys at three months, one year, two years, three years, four years, and finally five years, we had 338 patients. Mm-hmm. Now that's not 3,000 patients, but it's still quite a large number of patients for having five-year follow-up. And again, being able to look at those and study those in granular detail. We really learned a lot about those patients, including what you mentioned before, that those with a higher disease burden, a nose full of polyps, really were the happiest patients in the long run because they got such a great improvement in their quality of life. 
And there was one particular population that you found that wasn't as successfully treated in terms of their SNOT-22 outcomes. That population, I believe, was the patients with diabetes. Um, that and is I think, absolutely correct. Yeah. And there was a, it seems like that's, that's been sort of corroborated in other studies as well. I mean, here's the interesting thing about that diabetes cohort of patients. If you look at, let's say, I mean, there were four factors that really impacted quality of life. And we looked at everything, you know, sex and race and whether they'd had prior surgery, whether they were smokers, whether they had aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, whether they had polyps, hypertension, diabetes, migraines, immunodeficiencies, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And also we broke down to what the surgeries were, who had septoplasty at the same time, who had frontal sinusotomy. We just looked at so many how many number of surgeries they had had prior to this time, just looked at so many different factors. And again, generally what we found was, let's say for patients with polyps, they would start off whether they had polyps or not with about the same SNOT 25 score. But those who had polyps, again, had a larger delta, a significantly larger improvement in their outcomes at three months, one year, and all the way to five years. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case with the diabetic patients, however. The diabetic patients really didn't have a difference at three months or one year. But over time, and this is what this five-year longer study can demonstrate that shorter ones can't, over time, patients with diabetes at five years were significantly worse than patients who are non-diabetic. Again, it didn't show till four and five years after the sinus surgery. Yeah, interesting. So do you think that that was, it was it driven by these other domains that are within the SNOT-22 questionnaire that don't necessarily directly relate to their nose and sinus symptoms? Or was it because of their nasal symptoms that sort of drove that worsening SNOT-22 score? Yes, it was a combination. It was both the disease-specific domains as well as the general quality of life domains that are both found within the SNOT-22. What I think it was probably due to, and we had a lot of discussion because this was an unexpected finding in this diabetic mm-hmm. group with this late decrement in surgical outcomes. We think that it's because diabetics are more prone to infections. In fact, we looked at the antibiotic usage in the diabetics over time and found that that was increased compared to the average patient. We think it has to do with the fact that they are more susceptible to infections. With each infection, of course, you get uh. a little more swelling which leads to a little more blockage and predisposes you to a little more infection. You got a vicious cycle you see in diabetics. So we think it's directly related to the increasing number of infections in diabetics that we start to see at four and five years after surgery. Interesting. Well, that makes sense. Well, I wanted to touch base on another point that you brought up. So you looked at patients who had revision sinus surgery. And I, when I was looking at the preoperative baseline, it looked like almost what, 40% had had previous sinus surgery when they got enrolled, but only 10% ended up having another surgery during the duration of your follow-up. Do I have those facts correct? And what do you make of that? Yes, you do have those facts correct. We had a relatively high percentage of patients that had had prior surgery. That is just what happens when you're at a tertiary care referral center, an academic hospital, if you will. So we see less of the primary surgeries and almost half had had prior surgery, usually elsewhere before Uh referred to us because they hadn't done well. But again, it's this group that actually needed revision surgery sometime over the five years that was really interesting. Because remember, I mentioned there were four factors that led to a worsening five-year outcome. And that was, well, was related to polyps and uh, allergies and diabetes. We hadn't quite mentioned the 
preoperative CT scan, the Lund-Mackay score, also predictive. Okay. But revision surgery, the need for revision surgery, the fact that they had had it before didn't make a difference. They had had surgery before. And the fact if they even had revision surgery during the five-year study period, it didn't affect the final five-year outcome. Now, it did affect the shorter four-year outcome. Mm-hmm. sometimes the three-year, because most patients that needed revision surgery had it at, was a mean of 41 months. So between three and four years, we saw a bounce, a decrement, if you will, mm-hmm. in the outcome scores for patients who needed revision surgery because they got worse. That's why they needed surgery. And they had to recover from surgery out of the post-operative healing period. So their scores were worse if they had revision surgery at between three and four years. But by the time, you know, a year or two went by at five years, they were back to the same level as they were as if they never had that revision surgery, which is, again, a good improvement, a much better improvement right. compared to baseline. Let me just say first, before we miss the forest through the trees, this study did show that there were lasting improvements from endoscopic sinus surgery at five years, lasting improvements. In yes. other words, patients did do well. And that is nothing to sneeze at, uh, <laughs> no, pun in, no, no pun intended there. I mean, you, if you just look at it, again, we had almost 1,000 patients. 73% of those patients showed minimum clinically important difference. And even those that don't, there was a statistically significant improvement that was lasting over the five years. It started right away and it's three months and just stayed the entire time period. So even though there may have been little bumps up and down, a little fluctuations up and down, I mean, really, the scores improved for all post-operative time points in all subcategories of patients. It really, it really supported the concept that endoscopic sinus surgery works, but it did it in a quantitative way that we can show to our payers, our managed care organizations, to our patients, and to ourselves. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to kind of put it into context with some of the reports that people tout as some of these new therapeutics are coming on the market we need to kind of put it in perspective with the current therapeutics that we have. But there are reports that recurrence rates of polyps is up to potentially 40%. And we can notice that recurrence of nasal polyps at six months. That was a study by Takante. But then Glosser's group did a large uh, meta-analysis to kind of extrapolate the general revision, surgical revision rates in sinus surgery, taking all comers. This included about 34,000 patients and they recorded surgical revision rate of only 18%. Now that's higher than what you're reporting, but that being said, it's still, as you mentioned, much lower than what some people talk about these recurrent nasal polyps. So how do you feel about your data sort of fitting into some of those publications about recurrence rate and revision sinus surgery? We did a head-to-head, you're talking about biologics, which is such a hot topic right now, obviously. This exact study, this longitudinal study, which we're doing with over 1400 patients. As I say, this took a group of about a thousand of them, which were in the surgical arm. We have a whole other group that's in a medical arm that hasn't even been included in this paper. And we have a whole other group. We're just looking at the SNOT-22, a disease-specific instrument, outcome mm-hmm. instrument, but there's a quality of life one, the EQ5, European Quality 5, which is used to compare against different diseases. So we have a treasure trove of interesting data and the study is ongoing, patients being entered as we speak. And uh, that number of five-year follow-up patients keeps going up and up and up. So we have looked at the interesting question about biologics. And I want to say that Dr. George Skangas was a lead author in a recent study where he does a cost-utility analysis comparing these patients, the exact same patients ah. we're talking about in this current study, 
and compares them to another matched cohort of patients who receive biologics. And I want to simply say, without going into too much about the details, just like revision rate numbers are all over the map and all over the literature, there's a lot of assumptions that go into a lot of these studies. But the cost-utility analysis, which shows how much does it cost society to do endoscopic sinus surgery, and what is the improvement in the quality, the quality-adjusted life year over time, which we can calculate based upon these studies. And again, surgery works well. It's relatively inexpensive, believe it or not, compared to some of the newest biologic agents. You really get a lot of bang for your buck that's long-lasting. That means up to five years mm-hmm. with the surgery. And the question is biologics, not only is it their cost, but is also how long-lasting will they be? Do patients who start biologics on day one have to continue every two weeks for the rest of their lives, for five years, for three years? We just don't have an answer. There's a lot more questions right now than there are answers. But again, it's through studies like this with evidence-based medicine and collecting the raw data that we're going to get those answers. I completely agree with you. And and I thank you for you and your team's contribution to that knowledge base. There is, we're very excited about this new era of of therapeutics that may be very effective for a group of our patients that are very challenging to treat, but it's nice to show that this is the one therapeutic sinus surgery in which, although it's not curative, it can be for most patients can be, will only need one sinus surgery. And so the durability, as you mentioned, as this study points out, can be very long and very effective and keep patients very happy in terms of their symptoms for a long period of time. So I thank you for that contribution. You're very welcome. And Amber, I'm really bullish about the introduction of biologics to the field of chronic rhinosinusitis and particularly nasal polyp disease. I remember when I was a resident in the 1980s and topical steroid sprays were introduced and everybody thought it was going to be the end of nasal surgery and the end of sinus surgery. And it turned out to be a great boon for our specialty and our patients. And I think the same thing is going to be true of the introduction of biologics and therapeutic agents such as those for the treatment of our patients in the future. It's really going to help our profession, help our patients, and in the long term, help us as well. Agreed. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for talking with us today. And Look forward to additional future studies from you and your group on the outcomes of this larger population as you get more and more patients. We're going to be very interested in looking at the different ways that you slice and dice all of that information. So thank you again. My pleasure, Amber. Thank you and good luck to you and your group as well. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.